KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about the new perspectives and the new treatments for obesity. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's the conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Medication first used to treat diabetes has also proven successful at treating obesity. This is a completely new way of how to treat weight that is what we call physiologic or hormonally based. We'll talk about how these medications work and how the understanding of obesity has changed. Plus, after struggles with obesity, author Martinez Evans started an inclusive run club. He'll join us to talk about it. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Semaglutide products, which are used to treat diabetes, are now being used to treat obesity, Ozempic and Wegovy being the most popular. The drugs have ushered in a new era of weight management, and they've proven to be effective. So effective, drug makers can't keep up with demand. Here to talk more about these drugs and how they're changing the treatment of obesity is Dr. Ken Fujioka. He is Director of Nutrition and Metabolic Research and founder of the Scripps Weight Management Clinic in San Diego. Dr. Fujioka, welcome to Midday. A real pleasure to be here. We're so glad you're joining us. Okay, so we've heard a lot about these drugs like Ozempic, Wegovy, Munjaro. How do medications intended for the treatment of diabetes actually work in the treatment of obesity? So this is a completely new way of how to treat weight that is what we call physiologic or hormonally based. So humans essentially are wired to eat all the time, 24-7. When we eat a meal, we release a half a dozen hormones that go to the brain to get us to stop eating. Semaglutide, Manjaro, Wagobi, Ozempic, these are copies of those hormones. So what they do is they go to the brain and they tell the brain, hey, it's okay to stop eating. And more importantly, it tells the brain it's okay to keep the weight down because I'm sure a lot of people have tried unbelievably. I mean, they're just tough as nails. They drive their weight down and then it just starts driving back almost out of the control. And that's because of the changes in both their metabolism, which lowers and the satiety hormones also lower. So giving it back, giving one of these satiety hormones or two of them is just been a total game changer. That in mind, you know, we're still learning more about the brain's role in our weight and eating habits. And there is this idea of a set point when it comes to our weight. Can you explain what the set point is and and what it means for our weight and overall health? The set point was something, you know, that we kind of thought about as, let's say, just 10 years ago. So not that long ago. 
And we kept thinking that weight was just something that you control by just willpower and that it wasn't related to metabolism. But it turns out that there's a set point up in your brain, we call it the hypothalamus, that whatever's the highest weight anyone's ever been at, that becomes the new set point. So let's say a woman gets pregnant and she gains 60 pounds with the pregnancy. Sure, you can knock off about 20 for the baby and extra fluid, but about 40 of that now is now stuck in the brain saying, okay, that's my new set point. And it's going to stay at that set point. Here's the scary part forever. So for the rest of that person's life, that highest weight they've achieved becomes the new set point. And again, the body will do whatever it can to always keep the weight at that higher set point. And it does it by lowering these hormones we talked about, the satiety hormones, so that when they're supposed to come up and tell you you're full, guess what? They don't come up. The hypothalamus knows, keep them down till the weight gets back, then let them come back up to that high level to tell you you're full and stop eating. The other thing, though, that a lot of people don't realize, it really lowers your metabolism, too. So let's say somebody's lost 20 pounds. Well, all of a sudden now their metabolism drops by 300 calories more than it's supposed to. So every day they, you know, they don't burn an extra 300 calories. And so it's, again, very tough to keep your weight down from both a metabolic standpoint and what we call a satiety standpoint. It's very interesting. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people who say obese people just need to exercise and eat a healthy diet. Why does that not work for everyone? Okay, that that is the million dollar question. And, and I'm embarrassed to say when I was in medical school, that's what I was taught. And it turns out we're, we're we couldn't be more wrong because essentially you're fighting biology. It's like telling somebody, hey, you know what? Don't breathe or hey. A woman don't menstruate, something like that. It, the body is making these constant adjustments again to get that weight back to the highest level, and it's doing it at multiple fronts. One, lowering your metabolic rate. Two, making you think about food constantly. And patients will often tell you, "Yeah, you know, when my weight's down, I kind of get this noise in the back of my head. It keeps thinking about food." And when again, when we give these hormones, what happens is that noise goes away. So now they're quote, like anyone else who's never had to battle with weight. Do you think that misconceptions about obesity, even within the health industry and the health field, stand in the way of people actually getting the treatment they need? Definitely. There's no doubt that, unfortunately, at multiple levels, at the level of, say, even a family member, you know, like you could have a husband and a wife and and the guy's really doing his best to lower weight, but he's struggling. And the wife says, no, you don't need any appetite suppressant. You don't need any help. You can do it on your own. But even at a physician level, you get a doctor who's not been taught this newer, we call it metabolic adaptation, where you drive your weight back, hasn't been taught that, which is, you know, again, this concept's only been around not even 10 years, I would say like five years so again, an older doc who's not kept up, he may not know it. Nurses may not know it. And then on top of that, insurances are saying, hey, look, this is a lifestyle problem. It has nothing to do with biology, so we're not going to cover it. So on multiple fronts, you see all these barriers to people to try and get, we consider adequate treatment because there's no doubt to us, being overweight is truly a pathologic disease. It's not something you will on yourself. Nobody wants to be overweight, but the problem is the body just is so good at driving it back up again with biological mechanisms. 
And talk about some of the health issues that come along with obesity and morbid obesity, and even the misconceptions that we have around what obesity looks like and what morbid obesity looks like. Sure. I, you know, when the minute you get, say, 30 pounds for some smaller people, 40, 50 pounds for bigger folks, we know that your lifespan's shortened, that you're not going to live as long, and that you're clearly going to get you diabetes is number one on the list. That's the one that goes to first. And you got to remember that 10%, of the U.S. population has diabetes, but another 20%, so now we're talking a third of the U.S. population total, has prediabetes. And the bad part is when you got prediabetes, you're already starting to get the problems of diabetes. You know, your feet are going to go numb, you get heart attacks, things like that. High blood pressure, cholesterol problems, cancers. There's about 14 cancers that are so closely related to weight. Unfortunately, the big one is breast cancer because as we get heavier, women will make more estrogen. That estrogen then drives cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer. So there's no doubt this is all associated. And we think we actually are underestimating the number of people who struggle with weight because certain races actually don't handle weight gain very well. So if somebody says Asian, all you have to do is just put 20 pounds on them and they already get these problems. So again, we've got a, and everybody knows this, almost half of the U.S. population is at risk for problems related to weight. How have these drugs changed how you treat patients? So, you know, we've always done diet and exercise, and then we add in the medications. And most people have actually tried diet and exercise before. So they're already ready to get some help. And what these medications do is they make it so much easier to stay on track with the diet. They make that so that you can eat less, you can eat much less, and you feel satisfied and you're okay. And then you're not driven to eat so much. So that's huge. Now we find what you also got to do, though, is add in exercise. Because if you lose, we'll say 20 pounds, most of us will lose 15 pounds of fat, but about five pounds of lean tissue. And if you're not exercising, you can lose a higher percentage of lean tissue or muscle mass. So again, exercise now becomes really key. And we're looking at both resistance training and cardio and adding those in. So we're doing all this, but earlier you said in the program that actually they can't make enough of this stuff. We're we're running out. And so now I have to prioritize. And so now I'm thinking, okay, who can I give this to? Because I know I'm not going to be able to get much of it. And so for me uh, and most physicians, we're going to really prioritize the diabetics because that group we already know are running into big time problems. We got to get their weight down now. Somebody who is overweight, but doesn't quite yet have diabetes. Okay. They're going to get it, but they may have to wait in line, so to speak, because I don't think they're going to get caught up at least for another three or four months. Hmm. When a person starts taking these medications, do they have to stay on them for the rest of their lives? That's exactly correct. You really need to think about these medications as long term, because again, we said earlier, the set point is set at the highest weight forever. It never goes back down. We actually thought it would go down after a couple of years it doesn't ever reset. It just goes to that highest level. So these are long-term meds. The thing is, these meds are so good. And I, again, I've never seen this in my career. I, I didn't even dream of this. 
um, when we were studying these earlier, we thought, okay, we're going to get 10%, maybe 15. No, now we're getting 20%, 25%, as good as bariatric surgery. And so we actually will get somebody to their goal weight. And then sometimes we have to back off and give them a lower dose just to maintain. And I think in the future, you know, five, 10 years, you're going to see these newer, you know, types of meds where you might do an injection once a month just to keep your weight down because you just need maintenance at that point. And you mentioned bariatric surgery. Which one is more effective at weight loss, bariatric surgery or these medications? So I also used to always say bariatric surgery is the gold standard. It's number one. With these new meds coming out, I don't say that anymore. There are many, many folks, and we're not just talking 10% or 20. We're talking 30 to 50% of the patients now are getting weight loss as good as bariatric surgery with these newer medications. Okay. So what about side effects? I know Europe is investigating potential links to suicidal thoughts. What do you know about the short-term and long-term side effects of these medications? So the most noticeable side effect is that you will feel so full when you're on these meds that you actually feel a little nauseated. And as long as you eat a small portion that you'll do fine. But if you, you know, and your brain's kind of cued in, well, I used to eat a, you know, a whole, you know, huge burger and fries and you try and do that, you're actually going to get sick. So in terms of you'll vomit. So what, what in essence, it really retrains your thinking and you have to go really slow on what we call titration. So we start with a very low dose. And then the next month we go up to the next dose. And then the next month we go up to the next one. So it can take three, four, five, six months to get to that, what we call magical dose or the therapeutic dose. And and again, that really gets those little side effects out of there. Now, this issue of suicide is interesting to me. We studied that for many years because we do know, and we've seen this with all the weight loss drugs. Whenever we give any kind of weight loss drug and we get good weight loss in people, 99% of people are happier. They're going, this is great. They function better. Their happiness scale goes up. Their depression scales go down. Everything is going well. But about, I don't know, it's probably around 0.3, maybe half a percent of people actually get really down when they lose weight. And we're not sure why that happens. But, uh, and this has been studied quite extensively for about the last, I would say almost 20 years because you may have heard there were some older weight loss medications that were around that they actually didn't make it or got pulled from the market because they actually made you very depressed. So again, this the FDA is aware of this and they're really good about making sure that when we study these new drugs, you really do every single thing to make sure that they're not going to increase suicidality. Hmm. So that all of that in mind, who is a good candidate for these medications and who isn't? The person who's probably ideal right off the bat is somebody who qualifies for bariatric surgery. This should be their first step. If they fail this, yeah, they should go to bariatric surgery, but this would be an awfully good first shot. The next group then becomes somebody with that that's overweight or struggles with weight, but has a medical problem that's already surfaced and is out there that's related to their weight. So let's say high blood pressure, diabetes, that group they're really, they're next. They really should be right in line. And then just somebody who is, and I'm being technical here, but there's the term overweight. And then there's a term we use obese. 
Somebody with obesity, now that's somebody who, again, is more in that, like for women, 30 to 35 pounds overweight, for guys more like 40 to 50 pounds overweight. So that group, we know they're going to get problems. The last group would be somebody who's just overweight. And that's actually a group that shouldn't get it. If they're if somebody's just a little bit overweight, they just want to lose 10 pounds for an upcoming wedding or something like that. This is really not for them. This is for, again, medical weight loss for usually a serious problem. Has obesity been a struggle for you? What's your experience been like to get treatment from doctors? Give us a call at 619-452-0228. Leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, the conversation continues with more on how semaglutide products work and what taking them means. It's like a job. You, you have to just stay on it every day because if you back off even just a little bit, that weight will creep back up. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We're talking about weight loss drugs with Dr. Ken Fujioka. Dr. Fujioka, one thing giving some people pause is the high cost of these medications. Often they exceed $1,000 a month, uh, but the cost has obviously not affected the popularity of these treatments. Can you talk a bit about that? You, you know, this is a real tough issue, this cost of the medications. And it, it's only because eventually they'll get caught up and they'll have enough. And so we won't have the shortage. And right now, is who's going to pay for it is the bigger issue. And that's usually insurance companies that are now covering these meds. And believe me, most insurance companies don't want to cover them. And if they covered them, you got to remember, half of the U.S. population actually qualifies for these newer medications, half. So they would basically go bankrupt if they had to cover the medication. And just like you said, $1,000 a month for some of these medications. So this is a real tough issue right now, roughly, and I'll just talk about in Southern California, about a third of the patients do get it covered by insurances. They want to make sure that you're the right person, that you're heavy enough and all that, but it is covered. They do cover them though for diabetics. They're routinely covered for all diabetics. So that's great. And I think the insurance companies get it. But again, for somebody who's just quote, obese or struggling with obesity, so they're say 50 pounds of weight, but they don't quite yet have problems. They're going to be the tough one to get coverage. And they, but again, as you said, it, they can't make enough. So it's clear a lot of these folks are just buying this cash. Again, it, it amazes us what people are willing to pay if something works. This stuff works. On cost and insurance, uh, we did hear from one audience member, Kathy Taylor, who had this to say. She says, My doctor prescribed Wegovi for me based on my height, BMI rate. My insurance company refuses to pay for weight loss meds. I see that approach as very short-sighted. Are you aware of any companies who will pay for it? If I were diabetic, it would, but thankfully I'm not. Um, You know, how much do these misconceptions that we talked about earlier factor into whether or not insurance companies are are going to pay for this? Yeah, so some of this is, is, is in there. 
And so when you when you ask the question, you know, who what companies would cover it? It's interesting that when you if you work, say, for a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company, they're going to cover it because they realize they don't want you to go on to diabetes because the minute you get diabetes, your costs for healthcare go, you know, skyrocket. So they want to keep you from getting there. And and just like you said, some of the, you know, it, it might be somebody in your HR who makes the decision, we're going to make our payer, whoever, you know, the insurance company cover this med and we'll pay a little extra for it. But that person, if they don't understand about how hard it is to lose weight, they've never tried to lose weight themselves. They may not want to cover it then. So it's, it's really tough right now. We're, we're in this really, I don't know, quagmire of, you know, who's going to make that decision on to cover it or not. And again, the 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 healthcare industry gets it. Most healthcare places will cover it one way or another. And and again, as you said, diabetics it's covered. But if you're not there yet, say you're a pre-diabetic, yeah, two thirds companies won't cover it. You know, earlier you mentioned the difficulties some of your patients have been having finding these medications. First, what kind of wait time are they experiencing, and when can people expect for there to be enough to meet demand? So uh, right now, the only medication that's approved for weight loss is uh, that's in this class is called Wigovi. It's actually though the same molecule, uh, what we call hormonal analog, as Ozempic, which is the one that's all over the place, which is the one approved for diabetes. But the dose is a little bit higher for the weight loss brand. And so right now, they can't make enough of it. So they're not giving any what we call starter doses for Wagovi to patients because they just can't make enough of it. So, the, and the pharmaceutical companies made the decision, which I, I agree with them. I think they're, they were smart to do this is look, we've got to make sure the diabetics are covered. So they have enough, so you can start a new diabetic, they can get it. They're doing fine. But when the minute you try and go for the obesity brand, uh, semaglutide or Wagovi, now you can't, you can't even start on it. They don't even have starter doses. If you're already on it and you need the full dose, you can get that because they realize if they stop it, you're going to regain the weight. So it's, I feel for the people who want it now are ready to start. And we're looking at, I think at the best fall is when they may catch up. And, and believe me, all these companies are building factories as quick as they can to meet the demand. There will be another medication that will get approved uh, for obesity this year when i don't know uh it's currently in the diabetic form called manjaro and it's two of these hormones put together not one two so again it, it's very potent you get very good weight loss it's already approved for diabetes it's already been shown to be extremely good and extremely safe it'll get approved so again that will open up more availability to patients and while people may not be able to access uh these drugs in the medical offices as easily, med spas and clinics seem to be popping up on corners everywhere, offering these semaglutide shots. Are those places safe? I would personally recommend against those. It's it should, but and you're right. These you know GLP one pop ups are everywhere, and they're I don't know where they're getting it. You know uh, they've actually been sued by. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies, because they're claiming to have semaglutide or claiming to have 
the GLP-1 that these companies have. And they're either getting it, what we call offshore, they're getting it from Canada or Mexico, and then importing it in. And then I don't know if they're diluting it, but they're finding unusual things in it. So that shouldn't be in this in ejections. So again, I would highly recommend against these spa type clinics that are offering it. And the other thing is they're going to be very expensive. And I don't think they're going to be around long enough to keep somebody's weight down over the long run. And you've also made clear that these medications are not meant for people seeking a minor weight loss solution. So what do you suggest for them instead? So that group, they actually, if you just have, say, 10 or 15 pounds to lose, you actually have a better chance at getting it down with diet and exercise. It's still going to be hard, but it can be done. The body doesn't fight as much. It fights much more the more weight you lose. The more weight you lose, boy, it just fights back. So, and it's the old standard, you know. You got to cut calories one way or another. You know, most of us right now seem to feel that intermittent fasting is clearly one of the better ways to do it or time-restricted eating. But then the exercise really has to be there. And the data also shows that it has to be a combination of cardio and resistance training. And you're talking, now this is a lot, five hours a week. So they, they do those two things. They should do well in the long run. But again, it's it's like a job. You you have to just stay on it every day because if you back off even just a little bit, that weight will creep back up. Mm. Finally, for someone who is considering these medications to treat their obesity, where should they start? So they could start with their own, you know, primary care doc. Many primary care docs are getting very comfortable with these. There is a new specialty though. It's called fancy name, obesity medicine specialist. And these are folks that have taken an advanced exam, done extra training, and they're very good at it. They are good both from the standpoint of they know which drugs to use. They also are very good at the diet and exercise part. So they can really combine all three. So you get the best weight loss. And again, this is, it's hard to imagine this. This is the fastest growing subspecialty in the US now, more than gastroenterology, more than cardiology. It is now obesity medicine. And and I think because the need is there, again, half of the U.S. population seriously struggles with weight. So it's really neat to see this specially just emerging and really doing well. So there is a website they can go to. It's called ABOM, American Board of Obesity Medicine. If they go to that, they can then find a specialist in their area. And why do you think the need for these medications, this treatment, has uh, increased so much? We always think it's it's a combination of factors, like, I guess, like the movie, The Perfect Storm. But one is, it's real clear that the food we eat has changed dramatically from about 50 years ago. And all this weight change has really happened fairly recently in, you know, the last 30 to 40 years where it's just really ramping up. So one is we eat a much more highly processed diet with a lot more calories per bite. Two, you know, obviously a lot less fruits and vegetables. Three, there's other things in the food that we're just not sure about. We just don't know. And then one culprit that really is looking to be a real problem is high fructose syrup. It's clear that is not good for human beings because it drives up a hormone insulin And insulin, when you make the levels high, it turns into a fat storage hormone. So you store more fat. It's like signaling the brain, hey, I need to hang on to more fat. And then from the exercise standpoint, 
you know, we spend time in the car. We're, uh, we just don't burn calories throughout the day like we used to. And so again, we really need to look at, you know, how do we get in that exercise? And most of my patients, I tell them, look, you got to put it into your schedule. Like it's a meeting and you're going to do it. And sorry, nothing gets in the way. You're not scheduling anything then. I've been speaking with Dr. Ken Fujioka, an endocrinologist and doctor of nutrition and metabolic research with Scripps. And Dr. Fujioka, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Very insightful information. A real pleasure. Coming up, after his own struggles with obesity, author Martinez Evans started the Slow AF Run Club. My goal is to let people know that they are runners and they can be runners in the body that they are right now. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Starting a new exercise routine can be challenging for anyone, especially, though, for people who don't see their body type represented in the fitness industry. Author Martinez Evans is working to change that with his new book, Slow AF Run Club, the ultimate guide for anyone who wants to run. In his book, Evans demystifies running in the hopes of opening it up to anyone and everyone to experience all the highs and lows that come from running. For Martinez, the goal of running is not to lose weight or win races. Running, he writes in his new book, really has nothing to do with a number on the scale or a time on a stopwatch. Martinez Evans joins us now. Congratulations on your book and welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you dedicated this book to, quote, the amazing members of the Slow AF Run Club and to anybody that has felt they are too fat, too slow, too old, or too fill-in-the-blank to become a runner. So what is the Slow AF Run Club and how can people join? Absolutely. So the Slow AF Run Club is a virtual community of 16,000 members worldwide. Uh, We are housed inside of our own app on iOS and Android, so you can actually download the app right now. After you get done listening to this, you can just go search for Slow AF Run Club on your uh, favorite app store and you can get there. The reason why uh, we created this club is, you know, there has been a lot of individuals who recently just got into running via uh, the pandemic, and now they don't know what to do with themselves, right? And with me coaching these individuals, a lot of them don't even see themselves as runners because they don't fit the the traditional look or body type as a runner. So my goal is to let people know that they are runners and they can be runners in the body that they are right now because there's so many benefits to being physically active, uh, regardless if you lose weight or not. And you write about what you call your running origin story. It happened during a hurtful doctor's appointment. Tell us about that experience and why you think that had such an impact on you. About 10 years ago, uh, I found myself um, in a doctor's office. I've never met this doctor a day in my life except for that day. I was working at, at men's warehouse. I was on feet eight to 10 hours a day at this new job in hard bottom dress shoes. I developed some hip issues. So I went to go see this doctor. And I'm telling them, hey, I work at this job. I used to play football in college. I don't know what's going on with my hip. Please help. And he was like, I know what's wrong with you. Okay, what's wrong? He was like, you're fat. And he was like, you're fat. and You need to lose weight or die. 
So very harsh words to get when you are a plus size individual looking to get help about your issue. But I also feel like a lot of other individuals have also had this happen to them as well. Like literally you can have like a broken pinky toe and the doctor is like, yeah, we'll get to that pinky toe, but let's talk about your weight. So with me being frustrated and furious about what the doctor was saying to me, you know, he was going on to say, you know, you got a stomach as a pregnant woman, you need to start walking, all these other things. Right. And I told him, you know what, I'm going to run a marathon. And he laughed at me and told me that was the most stupidest thing he has heard in all his years of practicing medicine. And then he went also went on to say, if I ever tried to run a marathon, I'll die on the course. So now I'm sitting in this doctor's office. He's telling me to lose weight or die. And then I tell him I'll run a marathon. And he's like, nope, you can't do that. You're going to die as well. So I stormed up to the doctor's office and was like, you know what? Well, let's see about that. Let's let's see if I actually die if I uh, attempt to run a marathon. So I bought running shoes that day and I kind of started my running journey. Yeah, you took control of that situation on your own. I mean, did the doctor have any suggestions on how you can lose weight? <laughs> that was the funny part. The doctor... Brady Burst just told me lose weight or die, right? And then he told me I should start losing weight by walking. But he didn't give me any type of guidance or support when it came to like what exactly to do. So I'm just sitting there, right? And when I told him, well, you know, well, forget walking, I'll run a marathon, and him laughing at me and telling me that's the dumbest thing ever, it, it really just kind of put me in a situation where it's like, you tell me I need to lose weight or die. And then I come up with an activity that I might be interested in doing. And you telling me I'm going to die if I do that activity. So like what, what is really the solution there? So it kind of just left me lost and frustrated at the same time. I mean, you know, when people think about a runner, what do you think they picture in their head? Oh man. When people think about a runner, they think about skinny, uh, long legs and uh, a white individual. Right. And for non-traditional runners inside the Slug Up Run Club, like a lot of these individuals aren't skinny. A lot of these individuals probably haven't even been athletes or athletic throughout their years of growing up. So like this is their first time of attempting to be athletic and they already have like the big obstacle of getting over that mind hump that they too are actually an athlete and they should see themselves as an athlete as well. Why did you think a book specifically for people who don't fit that thin, white, able-bodied stereotype of a runner is needed today? So, you know, having this community of about 16,000 members, I, I tend to get the same questions over and over again. You know, should I run for speed or distance? What gear should I wear? Should I eat before I run? And these are some of the questions that I had when I started running about 10 years ago. And just to notice that, you know, 10 years has passed and there's not one book out there that is dedicated for beginner runners or individuals who feel like they are uh, left to fend for themselves. And I really just wanted it to be the change that I wanted to see. And you call running a struggle of the mind. Do you find the mental or physical aspect of running more challenging? I would say the mental aspect of it. Um, inside the book I write, running is 90% mental and 10% physical. And that's the fact that um, for a lot of individuals, it's literally you versus your mind versus everybody else. So the fact of you sitting on this couch about to get up, right? 
then you have your mind that's playing tricks on you, telling you you can't do that. And then you have all the other people around you who are looking, ridiculing you, or telling you you can't do that. So it's definitely a struggle of a mind versus being able to be physically active. And as you mentioned, you're a former football player and and really no stranger to the competitive spirit. Uh, And you say letting go of that competitive spirit has really been a key mindset change for you as a runner. Why is that? Um, It's because comparison is the thief of joy in the sport of running. Um, The sport of running is really about timing yourself against somebody else, comparing yourself against somebody else. And last time I checked, most of us are not elite athletes. So if you're not an elite athlete and your and your job does not consist of making first, second, or third place uh, in a race, we already know that we've lost, right? We already know that once we get to the start line, these elite, elite athletes have already finished the race and they're back home getting their, their second meal. So just to even to take that away so that we don't have that much pressure on ourselves to understand that we don't have to put all of this pressure on ourselves to move faster, try to run faster, beat somebody because we already know that the elites have already won. So if you take that notion out of it, you can really see that running is just a a place where you can have fun, you can be outside, and you can experience new places and new things all at once. So how did you get to that point? I mean, at what point in this journey did it dawn on you that, you know what, I need to let go of this spirit of competition and comparison? Yes, this is a very interesting question. So a year, not even a year, a couple of months after my first marathon in 2013, um, January 2014, I got into this very bad car accident and running was taken away from me. Um, and I didn't know if, if I was able to run again ever again. And I really got sad and depressed um, throughout this whole process. And throughout the therapy that I was going through, you know, one of the things I was telling my my therapist was, you know, running was the thing that brought me more joy. Running was the thing that made me happy. Running was the thing that I didn't know I needed in my life. And now that it's gone, I don't know what to do. And I remember just making this promise to myself of if I'm able to run, I'll run regardless of my weight. I'll run regardless of anything because running was the thing that made me happy. And running was the thing that took my my whole life to new heights. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm speaking with Martinez Evans about his book, Slow AF Run Club. And Martinez, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start their running journey? Where should they begin that? Yeah. So what I usually tell people is, you know, start off with running intervals. So start off with a 15 second run and then walk for 90 seconds. And after you do that, reevaluate. You can evaluate to say, okay, was 15 seconds not enough for me? Well, maybe you do 30 seconds. Was that 90 second walk too easy? Maybe you shorten that to a minute. And you just do that process over and over again for the next 30 minutes. And then you repeat that the next, the next day. So it's really about just starting off very slow and very at a short distance and build it upon that. And your book also explains the elements of running and really slowly walks new or inexperienced runners through the process. One of the things you wrote about this is that when we run, we should keep in mind two important elements, the lean and the landing. Talk to me a bit more about that. Yes, these are mechanisms that I found when training individuals uh, helps to understand how to have great form while running. So the lean is pretty much keeping your chest up high, making sure your head is up 
um, looking amongst the horizon and then the landing is making sure that your feet land right below you. So that way you don't have to worry about uh, overstriding. And as far as speed, you suggest conversation pace. What is that? Yes. So conversation pace, or I also like to call it the sexy pace, is the pace where <laughs> um, you're able to run and have a uh, a conversation with a friend on the phone, or if you can sing your favorite song, that's how you know you're going uh, at an adequate speed. If you can't talk, or if you can't sing a song, or if you're doing like, yes, I can, um, you're running too fast. Okay, that's that's new advice and good advice. What is the chafe monster, and and what can <laughs> runners do about that? <laughs> Old chafe monster. <laughs> so chafe monster is something that I experienced as a new runner. You know, like I said, I learned a lot of things the hard way, and one of the things that nobody ever told me was, "Hey, man, like, don't wear any cotton while running." And I wore cotton a very long time while running. And when you wear cotton, water sticks on you, it bogs you down, but also you you start to chafe. So imagine going for this run, you're feeling good. And then as soon as the shower water hits you, it feels like you're being cut by a thousand razor, razor blades. That is the chafe monster. Ouch. The chafe monster got you. <laughs> oh. So what I tell people is that, you know, ditch the cotton and then there's some things called like lube, like body lube. So like body glide um, is one of the lubes that you can kind of put on your skin so that it has a protective uh, effect so that it reduces the amount of shape that you may particularly get. Put a protective layer over your skin. Absolutely. Also, why is keeping a running journal helpful? So I think for... The, the reason why keeping a running journal is very important is that I find that a lot of new runners uh, disassociate with themselves when they're running. And one of the real, one of the goals with running is really to keep in check with yourself and really stay in tune with your body versus disassociating. So by having this running journal, you can keep in check with yourself, but it also, it also helps you stay motivated when you're feeling down. Because that way you can go back to that journal and see how far you actually came and how much work you put in to get you where you're at right now. And you emphasize how running is an individual journey. Uh, rule number one of running, you write, never compare yourself to others, as we spoke about. Um, that said, community seems to be a really important piece of it for you. I'm wondering how those uh, ideas coexist when you think about running. Yes, you can still part be a part of like a solo sport because historically running is a solo sport. But when you add a community to this, it makes running so much easier and funner, right? So it can still be a solo sport. You can still have solo goals. But when you participate in the sport of running with someone uh, and with a community, there's have research that's been said that it makes running feel less daunting. What has running brought to your own life? Running has brought a lot of things to my life. Of course, this book. But one of the things I like to tell people is that it has brought me to places that I've never would have even dreamed that I would be at. So, for example, uh, a few years back, I was in London uh, for a conference. And one of my friends told me, you know, while you're in London, go get trickle pudding. Like a proper pub should have that. So me and my friends ran around the city of London asking random pubs, hey, do you have trickle pudding? And they didn't have it. But we had so much fun just running to pub to pub, 
asking them about this, you know, this dessert that we've never heard of before and just laughing and joking. And like, that's just something that I just like want people to really experience is the joy of being physically active, being outside and being amongst your friends while doing it. In the medical field, do you think that um, misconceptions about obesity or being overweight really stand in the way of good advice and even treatment? Yeah. So my notion on this is that, you know, I think we focus a lot on like the the number on the scale versus physical activity, right? So I think we've got it wrong to say, oh, this person is the person of size. They must not be physically active. They must be, you know, unhealthy and so on and so forth, right? And I think we really need to flip that on its head and really ask people how active are they in their lives, knowing that physical activity is the key decision maker when it comes to health outcomes. Right. It's about mental and physical health, no exactly. doubt. So, yeah. so, so think about this, you know, people always like lose weight, right? Or like you're unhealthy because you're a person of size. And my thing is, well, what if that person of size is walking or running three to four times a day? What if that person of size has a a normal heart rate or blood pressure and so on and so forth? So is that person really unhealthy? So I think that's the question that we really need to start asking individuals versus just understanding, well, you know, this is the number on the scale and we're going to correlate that with this person having all of these health issues. Because, you know, for me being a 300 plus pound man and me running all of these marathons, like I can tell you that my, you look at my blood panels compared to anybody else, they're way better than anybody else's blood panel. There you go. I've been speaking with Martinez Evans, author of the new book, Slow AF Run Club. And Martinez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what are your thoughts on semaglutide treatments for obesity? What about the Slow AF Run Club? Does a more inclusive group to run with sound appealing to you? Give us a call at 619-452-0228. Leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. We'd love to hear your ideas. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.